0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna Patkiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Shrayana Bhattacharya. Shrayana is an economist in the World Bank's Social Protection and Labor Unit for South Asia. Prior to joining the World Bank, she has worked with ISST, ILO, SEWA and Center for Policy Research on a range of issues in the areas of urban bureaucracy, social protection, and informality. She completed her post-graduation in Public Administration and Economics from Harvard University. Her writings have appeared in the Indian Express, Economic and Political Weekly, Indian Quarterly, and the Caravan. Shrayana, I am very glad to have you here today and welcome to this
2: conversation. Thank you so much, Rituparna. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I know that you traditionally focus on uh, fairly academic books. Uh, I think mine is a par- partially academic book uh, and it's in part something else. So it's it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you.
1: Well, on that very note, actually, your book has been doing a lot of uh, rounds in social media. And, you know, I thought that we should also listen to the sociological side of it. And, you know, it falls somewhere within the boundaries of the two disciplines, economics and sociology, and something that we could also call economic sociology. So let me begin, actually, by asking you that what was your main inspiration behind writing this book?
2: Honestly, Rita Parnath was the stories I had the privilege of bearing witness to. Um, I, because of just talking about, you know, this sort of mutual fandom for uh, Mr. Shah Rukh Khan, I met all these women who are so different from me um, across the country, and it sort of connected us. And it allowed me, I think, an entry into the texture of their emotional and economic lives and choices. And I just wanted to tell that story. Uh, I think my inspiration was the women I encountered. Um, And my other inspiration was I really wanted to write a book that would make what has happened to women in the Indian economy in particular... But the sociological and sort of emotional underpinnings of what's happening to women in the economy much clearer to the reader. Because, you know, I I mentioned this in the book that the best economists know that the economy is not a bunch of soulless numbers and transactions. It's a feeling entity. And I really wanted the reader to understand and grasp the, the sentiment behind the statistics that were seen, uh, along with a fairly rigorous and yet accessible exploration of the statistics and of the theory. And so I think I had, you know, these two sets of inspirations. One, I just wanted to, to the best of my abilities, just give the reader a flavor of womanhood uh, through these stories that I had been so privileged to be a part of, to witness, uh, you know, over a course of more than a decade. And the other was I wanted the reader to get a sense of what is actually happening to the economy and how that's impacting women's sense of selfhood, um, their self-confidence, their ability to just claim pleasure and um, assert themselves and, you know, explore the emotional underpinnings of economic behavior. I think that's really something that was very important to me.
1: did you anticipate the kind of response that the book has received? I mean, did you foresee that?
2: You know, it's it's funny, uh, mashallah. I, you know, the book won a prize, which then you know you sort of take a step back and you think, well, wait, how did that happen? You know, it's, it's very strange. Um, I had never, honestly, when I was writing it. You know, I have been writing it Rudukkana for. It's been 15 years, right? So in a way, the time horizon is so long that you sometimes perhaps lose track of what will happen once it's out there. Um, and I never really thought about it because I just spent so much time just writing it and researching it. Um, I It's got a lot of love. I'm really grateful. I really had no sense of imagination on how the book would land. Um, I just wanted to diligently you know, do my work and just put it out there. And I really had some wonderful people helping me along the way, particularly my agent Shruti Devi and my editor Das Gupta. Um, But the one thing that has surprised me about the reaction is how deeply gendered it is. I still notice this deep reluctance and I hear it, you know, when I do talks or events for the book or I'll, you know, be randomly scrolling on social media and I'll see it And in fact, a lot of young women come up to me during events and tell me as well that uh, men seem to be very reluctant to actually think about, you know, picking up the book, getting into it, uh, partly because of Shah and partly perhaps because it's about womanhood. I'm not quite sure. Um, The reaction has been very gendered. Uh, The book is largely being read by women. Uh, it is being read by queer communities. Uh, I don't think straight men are as strong a part of the readership, which is, it doesn't surprise me, but that's been interesting just to observe how strong that is um, in the response and the reaction. Uh, because usually, you know, nonfiction books, you know, they're quite balanced, you know, gender balanced and who's reading them. Uh, But I wonder, is it just women who want to read about women, which is really sad, right? Because I really believe the locus of all our problems with patriarchy lies with elite upper caste men. Um, So perhaps it shouldn't surprise me that elite upper caste men largely are not reading a book about womanhood and what's happening to women in the economy. But that's been very interesting to pick up.
1: I think you're very right in that. Well, um, it doesn't surprise, but of course, you know, it's strange. Uh, So I also wanted to know if your own location and training as an economist or a social scientist has in any way impacted, you know, your work, the kind of methods that you have used or the context that you have picked up.
2: Yeah, you know, one thing, Ritupurna, when I was writing the book, I was very clear that I did not want to write the way I know it. There's a lot of traditional journalism as well as economic writing on women in the economy. And it's very useful work. It's wonderful work. I've read it. I've learned because of it. But I've always felt when I have read it that the person doing the writing is somewhat abstracted away, right? That they don't exist. And often you don't really get a sense of what the author's dynamic is with the people that he or she is writing about. And one thing I was very clear, in fact, because of my training in mixed methods, I'm I'm trained in qualitative research, I understand data as well, I really wanted to blend the two together to be able to tell a more vivid story and try and be a bit more honest about my own position Uh, vis-a-vis the people I'm talking about and how I encountered them and what was the nature of the dynamic, right? Um, And also include myself. So I I think one, perhaps, uh, it was almost in revolt, perhaps, to a very staid kind of writing I see in economics in particular, where you don't really, I mean, one, I think economists write for other economists and academics, I think, write for other academics largely, um, but I wanted really to sort of rebel against that form of the way an economics paper or an economics text is often written. And I'm really grateful, actually, to many economists who really supported the book. As you know, it's it's blurbed. And, you know, I've been really people, economists have been really generous with their time, you know, for interviews in the book. Um, For praise for the book. So that's been nice to see because I knew I was writing a book that was somewhat counter to the way traditional economics is supposed to be written and the economy is supposed to be written about and economic behavior is supposed to be written about. It's not really supposed to have a sense of humor, to be perfectly honest. It's not supposed to be light and touch. Um, It's also not supposed to be personal. But I wanted to blend, you know, my interest in the other disciplines in the social sciences, particularly sociology and anthropology and history, into economics. So I I think that's one. And the other thing, I do think uh, being trained in a certain way, uh, you're then also trained to make sure that the claims that are made are robust um that they're very detailed they're they're clearly drawn out for the reader you know your sources your material um the fact that Indian realities are so complicated that you need to sort of you know layer that and explain that to the reader Uh, I do think I'm very grateful to my training and just you know looking at data on employment, for example in India and I've done a lot of work in the past looking at women in the informal economy I think I was able to bring that to the text um, because I knew that num- those numbers and their nuances quite well, you know. And you can only explain things in an easy way to a reader if you understand that material well. So I think that's been really helpful. And then there were interesting things that I think a certain kind of training encouraged me to do. For example, in the book, you see, I measure, you know, how much women are speaking in film. I haven't really seen that kind of measurement happen in India. I've seen it happen in other countries. Um, So that was, you know, fun for me to do and to flex my, uh, the more sort of data skills that I have. Um, And so, yeah, I, I think for me, that's the way I think economics has framed the book. And the last thing I'll say is the whole book is underpinned with, A kind of theory that I know academics certainly in sociology and in economics use a lot. So the demographers, which is intra-household bargaining theory, and the idea is that when men and women start to earn additional resources outside the household, um, what does that mean for dynamics of consumption, employment, nutrition, decision-making within the household? And you see in the book, I, I lay this out through different chapters. I think the theoretical anchor of the book um, is intra-household bargaining theory. And and I think that is very much, had I not read that work by people like Naila Kavir, um, you know, books on intra-household economics, if I were not trained in that field, I would never be able to imagine, I think, writing this book the way I have. So I, I do owe, I think, my training in microeconomics of the household. Um, and everyone who's taught me uh, the fact that I was able to do this is, is, is because of that training.
1: Right. So again, to come back to the setting of the book, how important do you think, you know, the post liberalized Indian
2: economy is for tracing the story of Shah Rukh Khan? So, you know, a couple of things. One is I don't trace the story of Shah Rukh Khan. Uh, Shah Rukh Khan knows that I don't trace uh, his story in, in the book. I trace the story of these women. And Mr. Khan is a wonderful, what I call him a research anchor, a research method. Um, it sounds odd, but what that actually means is that, in fact, when I ask women about him, because he holds, I think, you know, what many, of, uh, many sociologists like yourself would call affect, right? Um, he holds so much... Uh, there's so many scripts that he holds about masculinity, about markets, about social mobility, that then women start talking to me about other things. They're not, if you look at the book, it's really fascinating. When I ask women about Shah Rukh, they're not talking about him, they're talking about themselves. And he becomes this really beautiful way to archive oral histories because women remember where they were when they saw a certain film when they saw a certain interview there are specific films or specific songs that they turn to when they're feeling disappointed because they're being rejected in the marriage market or the job market and so in a way Shah Rukh Khan allows me to tell you know it's it's inverted the book because I'm not telling a story or a a timeline of Mr. Khan in fact uh, Mr. Khan's icon allows me to construct and better deep dive into the timelines and stories of these women um, in the book. And I think what's what's useful, I, I think what was fascinating to me is that I don't think I would be able to do this with any other icon. Um, I don't think, for example, I could imagine telling a story about Bengali masculinity through the fandom for... Um, you know, Mohan Bagan, for example, as a team. But I, I think there is something about Mr. Khan's icon that is particularly female oriented. He's a women's icon, not a feminist icon, as I say, because of the films he's done, the things he says in his interviews. And I think going to your question, I think he captures a very important moment in our country's economy when we marketize much more and we liberalize. And what that means is, for example, all these women in the book, they talk about interviews that he's done. And, you know, the comments he's made about women in the in the workplace, women's safety, um, the way he talks about the women around him, be it his co-workers or his wife. But the reason we all had so much access to him speaking is because of liberalization. He was the first actor who came into the scene after there were so many satellite channels that were opened up with telecom reform, right? Um, So he really captures that. The reason he was so much more intimate with us was because there were all these channels now because of a booming economy and because of the satellite cable television market. At the same time, you know, as the economy grew, there were more products to be displayed, advertised, and he became this conduit, right? Was one of the one of the first big celebrities we had who really took to brand endorsements in a big way, which has now become such a commonplace, you know, theme now in our lives. But for example, in the book, you see many rural women say that you know they realized something had shifted in in their society and the economy when they started seeing Shahrukh's face selling Pepsi, right, on a poster near the local STD booth. Um, and he really forged the landscape of that, right? So so I think he came at a time when he is very much, I say he's not just a, our first post-liberalization superstar, he's also a superstar that captures the scripts of market reform, uh, be it telecom reform, be it suddenly more products being advertised and sold, be, be it a society becoming much more interested in consumption, uh, all of that you see, and but I will still say that I don't think the book is not about his icon because you know there are better people who've written books about his icon. I think what's fascinating to me, I realize, is all the women were using bits and pieces of his icon. I mean, he's not a monolithic icon for any of them. Uh, they're using bits and pieces of his films, his imagery, and ignoring certain bits and pieces as well. Uh, you know, like the roles where he's a stalker, and they will very openly critique some of those as you see in the book, but they're creating their own sort of sense of this ideal man. And and that becomes a way for them to essentially benchmark the men in their real lives uh, with him. And, And by that, I mean, I don't think any of them are looking for a celebrity in their real life. I just think that they are um, they're using the language of his films and his idioms to critique masculinity around them in a much more easy way. Because you, know, you and I, Rituparna, have a language of social science. We can you know, use a certain kind of way of speaking right about these issues. Uh, for many women out there, they don't. And you see in the book, it's really fascinating the way they use his film icon. Uh, to talk about the oppressions, the everyday casual oppressions uh, inflicted on them by men, families, workplaces, and it's fascinating. I don't think any other icon could have done that, and I think he does that for all the women. I study partly because I was interested in exploring it, um, and partly because he came at the uh, came onto the scene at a very critical time. I think in our economy and our society, which was liberalisation.
1: Right. I think that's a very interesting way to put it, that he is a research method or an anchor. So, uh, you know, if I ask you how Shah Rukh Khan represents ideas of selfhood and independence for women, I mean, that's a question that you have extensively dealt with in the book. But I think, you know, our listeners would be interested in you talking about some of these stories and, you know, illustrations to
2: make the larger point. Yeah, let's start. I mean, let's start with something simple. Um, the first and most important thing, which actually is true for all the stories in the book, is you know we tend to think that fandom is a cultural activity or it's a it's a it's a social activity, right? Um, but you realize in the book that actually fandom is also an economic activity. Uh, to be a fan, to like an actor, to nurture your interest in him to follow his work you need free time you need money, you need access to markets, uh, you need the ability to interact with markets and access public space and you realize in the book based on caste, class different social gradations some women, in fact most of the women in the book really struggle uh, to actually just be able to follow their favorite film star because they don't have the money they feel socially judged. Uh, they need permission to pursue their enthusiasm and often it's frowned upon. Um, and you see this, for example, there's a young woman in the book who sort of, you know, what I call the first generation of the middle class post-liberalization. You know, she's the first person in her family to finish college, first girl to finish college, first one who speaks English fluently. She ends up uh, taking up a job in the Delhi government as, as an accountant. Um, and she essentially... Uh, can't watch his films when she's in college even if she earns her own money uh, because her parents are very uncomfortable with the idea of her going to a cinema hall alone or with a boy Um, and they want her to save that money they think it's useless spending whereas she says you know men in her neighborhood who are the same age as her may not even be doing as, as well academically men are not scrutinized in that way and you know she actually has a quote in the book when she says women are always told to account, you know, for your time, your interests. Men are never asked to, you know, give an entire total tally of where they spent their money, where they spent their time. And, you know, she uses the example of cricket to say that, well, boys can watch cricket anytime they want. They can go to a match. But for a girl to want to go to a cinema hall, it's so difficult. And in fact, she, through the 15 years of, you know, her life that I sort of chronicle in the book... She essentially defines freedom for her is the ability to watch Shah Rukh without needing permission, anyone else's money, just being able to do what she wants with her leisure time, right? And to be able to seek it. So that's one. I think you realize through all the stories in the book, I mean, this is just one illustration that fandom is an economic activity and it tells you something very useful about women's ability to just purchase through the market and to participate in economic transactions. And it's very compromised. And I explain the reasons for that in the book. The second is, you know, for example, there's a young woman who's a migrant from Jharkhand, a tribal ca- Catholic woman uh, who moves from a village in Jharkhand to work for a very posh set of expats in this very fancy neighborhood of Jorba in Delhi and she sees Shah Rukh Khan for the first time actually on TV because um, her employers have two TVs and they allow her and along with this other woman who works uh, for them as a cook to watch maybe television for an hour. And uh, she's seen Shah Rukh for the first time on TV while she's working, you know, while she's in Delhi. And she says to me, you know, he's her favorite and, you know, and and I was asking her to explain more and she says, uh, she references this film of his called Rabne Banadi Jori, which I highly recommend everyone should go watch it. Um, and she says, you know, he has a song in that film where he is serenading a tiffin that the woman who is his wife in the movie played by Anushka Sharma has made for him. And she says, well, if every man would appreciate uh a woman's, you know, tiffin, the lunch she prepares for the man as much as this man does in that movie, women's lives would be so much better. So that's another example, an illustration of how they're using the icon to talk about how care labor is so unappreciated, unrewarded, the act of loving, nurturing within the home. And it's fascinating. This is coming from someone who's actually in the paid care economy, right? And this is something that's very salient to her. And her story is about how she through a lot of struggle, and I won't give away give it away for people who haven't read it, through a lot of struggle, manages to watch far more number of movies than I think anyone in her family has ever watched. Um, and, you know, she lies and cheats and she does all kinds of interesting things, uh, which you'll have to read the book to understand, uh, to be able to do this. But for her, you know, it's... For her, again, you know, she's seasoned Shah a man who values women's labor. So I think... It, The icon tells us very interesting things, of course, one about the economy, second about care labor. And the third thing I heard, for example, from women is, you know, he is always in the kitchen in his films or he listens to women. You know, he participates in emotional labor, right? I heard this particularly from elite urban women in the book. And so it's, you know, it's interesting how he allows for women to have these different conversations about masculinity, markets, um, care labor, uh, in a way, I don't think if I just went directly and asked people questions, you know, in that very straightforward social science way, tell me what you think about the men around you and masculinity, I think people would just ask me to get out of their homes. You know, it would be rude and intrusive and and people would struggle to want to actually want to talk to me. And so I think through Mr. Khan, I I just chanced upon this very unusual way to actually talk about all these very tricky topics. Uh, But people opened up. And the last thing I will say, Rukhapana, on this is, You know, fandom, I realize, and this is something I'm arguing in the book, is a great proxy for freedom for women. Um, And it could be different things, you know. It could also just be if a woman enjoys going to, I don't know, a Mela. um, That could be a proxy for freedom. But for the women in the book and the way I choose to structure it, your ability to just go watch your favorite actor, to enjoy it, to claim your joy, claim your pleasure unabashedly, is a very important measure of our quality of life and our freedoms. And you see how compromised these freedoms are in the book. I mean, it should horrify us that something so simple for people like you and me, right, uh, to just Google a song of Mr. Khan's is so difficult for so many women in our country to do. And I, I wanted to sort of leave the reader with that question of, you know, this is if, if access to leisure and pleasure and joy is so difficult, um, you know, what kind of society do we really want to build? Surely we want to build a society where everyone can claim their pleasure. But it's very hard and it's very particularly hard for the women that I chronicle in the book. And yet they're undaunted. So I think in a way, when the book is desperately seeking Shah Rukh, no one is seeking a celebrity, as I mentioned earlier. I think everyone is seeking the ability to just laugh and smile, right? And have fun and to have the economic space to do it, the social space to do it. Um, And you see in the book how these women work very hard in very quiet, unusual ways um, to seek that freedom. Uh, So they are all able to achieve it uh, with a fair amount of struggle. And I think the book just documents these choices and struggles over a very long period of time.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS?
1: I think, yes, of course, your book is also an excellent commentary on how women spend their leisure time in India. And uh, you address these ideas of fantasies and fan culture, as you just said, that it's also an economic activity, especially from a woman's perspective. So could you also talk about how Shah Rukh Khan and his films, even his interviews, offer an escape for the women from their daily lives? I mean, what is their relationship with popular culture?
2: So it's very class and caste-specific. Um, for example, Lily, the domestic worker I mentioned uh, from Jharkhand, she barely is able to watch an hour's TV. She's always working between her employers, uh, you know, figuring out other things for her own community. Uh, she finally, I won't again give it away, but uh, there are circumstances that, require her to move back to Jharkhand to her village and the lack of electricity in regular forms, uh, the lack of satellite TV, the fact that the phone network doesn't work makes it so difficult for her to watch Shah Rukh when she's you know no longer in Delhi, right? Um, so I, I think that, you know, for women like her, there are women like Zahira, this is a young uh, home-based garment worker in Ahmedabad, earns about a quarter of minimum wage uh, she doesn't have a TV of her own. She has to sort of rely on local people in her slum who do have a television. And these women get together and, you know, they try and watch a film um, and and they'll organize a generator. And, you know, she said to me that apparently when all these women wanted to organize a generator for a film screening of Dil Pagal Hai, I think it was, uh, because they knew it was coming on TV and uh, on, I think, one of the cable networks. And they wanted to make sure that, you know, they would be able to watch it the guy who organizes a generator nearby was just shocked. He said, usually we only have generators for weddings and for rituals. And, and he thought these women had gone mad. Um, but they all wanted very much to watch, you know, uh, Mr. Khan and claim their fun. And so I think for all of these women who come from the precariat, uh, I, I think that their relationship with popular culture is actually very stymied uh, by the economics of it. And yet they enjoy it for its music, its tone, its release. I mean, there's a lot of that discussion in the book. Uh, you know, for example, Zahira tells me all about her favorite song. And to her, it's you know it's it's interesting to her, it's it's just fantasy, it's not real, but it is a release. and And I actually do say, you know she comes from a family where she's left her husband uh, because he was violent. And she says, you know, in sort of the real world where real men are so disappointing it's nice to lose yourself into the fantasy of a man who is, you know, so glorious, right? Uh, Those wide open arms, they have such a huge psychological value, I think, for women who are struggling with a lot of oppression within the family, within the home. Um, And especially for women who come from difficult economic circumstances, because you're working so hard to just, you know, manage and, you know, stay on your two feet. And so Mr. Khan is a a diversion and, and relief from that. But if you start to move, for example, towards the the new middle classes, right? The women I mentioned, the accountant, there's another young woman called Gold. These are all women who are first generation to study and work outside the home and their families. And their families are not particularly happy about it. Um, for all of these women, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book, they're all faced with what I call a hidden tax. And this is drawing on work of economists, That, you know, each time these women start to depart from very traditional notions of good womanhood, right, who should marry within the caste, stay at home, take care of the kids, prioritize ritual and caregiving over trying to, like, you know, have adventures outside of your own uh, state or city or home. Each time women do that and women try and seek their pleasure, and Mr. Khan is just one example of that. Uh, there's a lot of judgment, uh, there's there's a lot of isolation, there's a lot of loneliness. You're made to feel bad about yourself, your you're second guest, and you see examples of this running through the book. And I think in those moments, right, when you're, for example, the woman who's the accountant is constantly told, no matter how successful she is at her job, what matters is whether she gets married. And when the arranged mar- marriage market is really not treating her well, she feels really bad about herself. And her family doesn't really allow her to feel better about herself through her work. Um, And she's struggling with that, with that sense of self-belief and self-esteem. And in those moments, she watches Om Shanti Om. It makes her laugh. Uh, It makes her cry. There's a particular dialogue in Om Shanti Om. She keeps repeating, you know, that eventually life will become okay, just like all Hindi films. Um, and I thought it was really, it's quite poignant the way she turns to these images when she feels so taxed. There are similar stories for gold in the book as well. Um, and so I think, you know, he becomes escape, uh, relief, entertainment when your real life is really taxing you uh, because you are partaking in behavior that is non conformist and you're rebelling against very strong structures. So that's, you know, I think that's the way they're engaging with really the new middle class is engaging with his icon. And then the elite urban, you know, English speaking families, you know, typically Brahmin women, um, very much women like me, there's a woman in the book called Vidya, who's a Tambram IIT engineer. For people like that, I think he really represents the story of rising without network wealth, right? Um, this idea of a man who made it without any connections um, in the industry and really sort of fought to, you know, push himself. I, I see that that sort of, you know, this this resonance of his lack of network wealth to become, you know, so successful as he did. He really is our idea of making it, right, without knowing anyone in the film industry mm-hmm. and not coming from a film family. Mm-hmm. That resonance, I noticed, is very acute among sort of the more educated urban um the aspiring middle class as well as the elite, when I start to go really down the chain economically i think i don't see i don't see those conversations about nepotism and you know his network wealth and how he made it on his own as much. I think there are people the women at least i encounter admire him for very different scripts of being a tender kind man because I think they're inhabiting very violent landscapes uh but as you start to go up The economic as well as educational echelon, you start to see this idea of a lot of women will say, well, we really admire him because he made it. And I think across all classes, they're all connecting with his image because they feel like he listens to women. And as I mentioned, I measured how much women speak. And even in those soppy, silly, regressive films, uh, and, you know, it's fascinating how rural women in particular view those seemingly regressive films very differently. And I won't give it away again. I think people should read the book to understand, you know, what I'm saying, particularly DDLJ, which, you know, that, that whole decision of them not running away. Uh, people like you and I, Rituparna, may look at it as being fairly regressive, but there are others out there who see that scene very differently. But I think for a lot all these women cross-class, they just appreciated the fact that he played men who listened to women, who had time for women's words, who didn't dismiss women's experiences. Um, not only in his films, but also in the interviews, the way he talks about womanhood. He actually went on semi Garewal and said, I think I have a lot of women in me. I don't think very many actors were doing that uh, at the time that he did. And I think a lot of women cross-class appreciated those utterances. So I think he... Again, not a feminist icon, but certainly a female icon because of the way he presents himself. But I do think all these women are engaging with his iconography very differently based on social gradations and and where they are on the sort of class caste pyramid. Right.
1: Again, very interesting, of course, and it was so, uh, you know, pleasurable listening to you uh, I also wanted to actually know if you know the stories of these women that you describe and their love for Shah Rukh Khan allows us to understand the relationship between the rural and the urban
2: yeah you know it's very interesting I think the best example of this where I think I really get into it is the story of Manju in the book she's a again home-based garment worker uh, living in Uh, Muslim-majority district of Rampur in UP. And she lives in a village where uh, women are not really allowed to be out and about. Um, There are very strict controls on women's mobility and and some emphasis on seclusion. And uh, you see that as the economy grows and there's more connectivity, and, and I mentioned, in fact, the roads that connected Uh, You know, the highways of Bareilly that connected Rampur to Delhi better. It became quicker for people to actually move in and out of cities. Uh, She has cousins, you know, male cousins who go on joyrides on bikes, right, all the way up to different cities, uh, you know, be it Noida or different parts, right, of the NCR. And as a woman, she cannot do this. And you see in the book that her and all her female friends, they get together and they're very upset that, you know, when will we get to go to the malls and when will we get to see the cities? And I think it tells you a very interesting story about the rural-urban transmission, right, through roads um, and what's happening to women's aspirations. And as for Sharoff, I think what's interesting is he is an urban hero. Um, I think we make this huge mistake, and I think the book is some corrective to that, when we seem to think that he's just an urban NRI person's hero. Uh, that you know only wealthy people like his iconography. That's not true at all. Um you see the book that women from very, very different circumstances and backgrounds absolutely love him. Um and what's fascinating is that to all these women he represents a man that can now exist in cities. You know, like for example there's a uh, the woman I mentioned Zahira who's the garment worker in Mdabad, her daughter She believes that she needs to move to a city to find a man who's more evolved. Uh, I don't think she's expecting to meet Shah or no one. You know, that's not a real construct. I mean, it's something that, you know, the actor has created. He's not a real person. Um, But she wants to meet more, you know, perhaps more liberal men, or she wants to have different experiences. And she knows that the only way to do, place to do that is a city. And so I think there is this interaction between not just urban and rural. I mean, that, that's certainly one. You see this play out in the case of Manju work, living very much in a very rural, secluded, uh, traditional environment. And you start to see what happens to her when she sees these urban images of an actor in London uh, on the tube and um, you know, being very urbane, right? And, and um, I, you see a set of interactions and aspirations that that unlocks in her and a set of behaviors, and again, I won't give it away, uh, which are quite remarkable. And I, and I think there's that transmission, right, of urbanity to a rural audience. Um, and at the same time, there's this thing about him being this kind of new city person. Um, you know, like one woman said to me that earlier, you know, you could find good men in fields and factories. But now all the good men are in cities, like just like Sharo. And so there's this idea of wanting to migrate for adventure. And, you know, we know we live in a country where it's very hard for women to migrate without marriage, right? Women migrate for marriage, largely. And yet you see all these women in the book who are really keen to perhaps migrate to a to not just, you know, a city, but sort of a mega city like Bombay or Delhi, where they believe men like this exist. Um, And some of them are able to actuate those ambitions. So I I, I do think that there is a link there. I mean, one, because of the men he typically has played. um, And B, because I do think he relayed these messages of market reform and what was happening in cities to large rural audiences as well.
1: Right. So uh, taking a detour from, you know, the rural and the urban, one of the sentences from your book that actually struck me and has stayed with me is that you write and i quote is singlehood of women a legitimate feminist grievance well could you explain what it means and if you have an answer now that you have written the book and you know you have gotten so much response to it
2: um so the the line is actually is not having a boyfriend a legitimate uh feminist grievance I was being tongue-in-cheek in in that line. Basically, that that chapter is about a set of very posh women I had interviewed and met um, who really have no economic frictions in their lives. Um, These are women who are highly aspirational, highly privileged, um, and yet they operate in romantic environments where you realize that being a professionally ambitious woman will hurt you in your romantic prospects. Um, You know, men, I think what they were all telling me is that men aren't comfortable with women who are as economically successful as them. And by men, I mean, again, these are largely upper caste, posh, elite men. Um, That, you know, while we have the veneer of modernity, and I think it is Dipankar Gupta, right, who talks about mistaken modernity. I really like that phase. I love that book. Um, I, I think it's it's precisely that, which is that while it has the veneer of modernity, um, if you scratch the surface, as any woman who is inhabiting sort of, you know, very posh environments in Delhi will tell you or, you know, in many cities, is that there's a lot of social control exercised on women through gossip, through Uh, making women feel isolated and lonely. It's really difficult for single women to find housing to live on their own, for instance, right? So you always, you know, there's this script that you must pair up with a man and and a suitable man. And I think all of this is much, much more acute uh, nowadays amongst our elite society. And I think in that world, what I think the woman who I had interviewed was saying to me was that, well, sometimes I wonder that by being professionally ambitious, have I just completely you know sort of priced myself out of the mating market um because she says you know none of the men that she would be interested in would be interested in her they'll often date people women who are not as challenging right and who are much more flexible in their ability to switch time right they can focus on being a mother on or giving this man support Um, and i think the other part of this was that a lot of these posh women were saying to me that you know while women have really evolved in what they want to do for themselves, their scripts and beliefs around the world about the role of women in society. Men are yet to adapt. And, you know, the data in the book shows that men barely spend time in the kitchen. We are in the bottom five of the the world when it comes to men supporting housework. Men don't are yet to completely. And again, when I say men here, I do mean elite upper caste. It's that upper class of men are yet to sort of acknowledge that the world doesn't center around their economic flourishing, uh, that perhaps they need to be supporters of women's economic flourishing and personal flourishing. uh, Outside the home is something, actually, I think a lot of men are struggling with, and we have a crisis of elite masculinity around that. We see it in our politics as well. I think uh, we're becoming very conservative in that world. And I think in that world, this woman is saying... The fact that I can't find a partner, is that actually a feminist grievance? I I would contend it's not a, it's perhaps not a feminist grievance. Uh, It's a grievance. I think it's also a grievance of this crisis of masculinity, uh, this crisis of men who seem liberal on the surface, but actually when it comes to their actual behaviors, aren't, they aren't able to put women ahead of them in certain decisions um and men who don't show up in the kitchen for example despite however many lectures they may give on being liberals on you know outside in the world and i think in that in that crisis of masculinity of elite masculinity which is really yet to adapt to become credibly modern um you know I, I i think it's a grievance that's coming from that source and i think it's a social it is a sociological phenomenon it's it's being reinforced Not just because of patriarchal concepts, but also because of the market. Because for a lot of these women, they also feel locked into this desire to want to find a mate. Um, You know, Many of these women, when they'd complain to me, I'd say, well, why don't you just say, well, to hell with it? I'm happy to be on my own. But the problem is socialization and plus costs. It's really difficult to survive as a single woman. You're supporting your parents. Um, Many of these women often don't come from property. Some do. Um, And I think for a working woman who is even elite, finding, you know, as I said, housing or credit markets or programs that support you and that make you feel safe is very difficult. So in that world, you feel locked into this mating market. And I think uh, I don't know about a legitimate grievance because it's not, you know, my I mean, I think all grievances are legitimate. Uh, but I just, I think it's a it's a grievance that is worth studying very carefully. I, I think we're very quick to dismiss the sort of romantic aspects of the economy because the economy is shaping our love lives uh, and patriarchy is shaping our love lives. But the economy is, is as well in, in women's limited access to independent income. I contend, for example, amongst our elite if more and more women, and I see it around me, if more and more women said, well, I can just be on my own, and I can live safely on my own, I wonder how many of them would then end up marrying or partnering with these men who are, you know, man-children. Uh, I think we would actually have a serious crisis of marriage then, but we're not there yet because the economy will not allow for it. And so I think it is a, it is a grievance that is to me worth an analytic attack and a close one. I think there's something very interesting going on there. Um, and yeah, I think that's as much of an answer as I have to it. Right. So, last question. Of course, the
1: book has, with good reason, been in news for its contribution to studying single women and their lives. So, do you think that, as, you know, probably, even if, you know, the economy doesn't allow it, as you just said it, uh, but more and more women realize that probably marriage is not the only answer to, you know, their problems, Uh, the importance of these works will only increase, and, you know, what is the future scope, if you
2: see any? Yeah, you know, I wrote this book very much to comfort sort of the version of me in my late 20s and early 30s who believed that if I were not marriageable or if I were not partnered up, that there was something very deviant and wrong uh, about me. And it was affecting my self-esteem. And I know that I'm not, my experience is not unique. It's very common. Uh, And I really wanted women to realize, in fact, there is a shared sisterhood of all of us. Cross-class, cross-caste, uh, women are feeling this way. Uh, there is something going on in our society about a sense of isolation. Women are even feeling isolated within marriages, and you see that in the book. Um, and I, I wanted the words and the data, and I think sometimes we don't realize social science has this has, a, has the power to explain the world to us. But it also has the power to comfort us because, you know, if you can understand that there is a large theoretical structural set of reasons that you're feeling bad about your body or feeling bad about yourself or uh, feeling lonely or feeling isolated, if you realize that one, this is a shared experience and B, it's not your personal petty fault, it's, it's social structures and economic structures that are doing this. I do think it, it, it is comforting. Uh, it certainly comforted me when I read, for example, Naila Kabir explaining to me what's happening within households. Uh, and, and that really opened up, you know, my way of thinking about women in intimate relationships. And so, yeah, I, I hope we study intimacy more rigorously, uh, more carefully um, for all its layers. I think intimacy is a site, as I articulate in the book, to me, intimacy is the fundamental site of social change, of social protest. It's not on Twitter. Um, I don't even think it's on the street, to be perfectly honest, in the times we live in. I really think, particularly on gender, the, the really credible changes are happening within intimate relationships, within brothers and sisters, within people having very difficult conversations with each other, which are not really in full public view because that is why they're difficult. And in the book, I'm able to access some of these difficult conversations and share them with the reader. I'm able to share my own difficult conversations. And I hope we see more of that work of what is happening to our intimate realm and where are we when it comes to social change and modernity in that aspect of our lives. Uh, so yeah, and I, and I think the more work that 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 we bring out in that area, of course, it will comfort uh, and it, in my sense is it'll resonate with a lot of women and, and a lot of men perhaps as well who are struggling with this. Um, but uh, but the one thing I do want to say is I, I think we should really now start encouraging, um, I think while we're studying femininity and so on, I, I think there needs to also be a look at what is happening to this. I mean, there are books now on masculinity, but I, I really think that there needs to be A lot more rigorous work thinking about how, you know, especially our political changes, what they're doing to men's sense of self-esteem. And also the fact that the economy is so unstable right now. What does that mean for men? And I think some of that work will be comforting. And I I also think it will be very useful for us to come up with better programs and better social movements that can create solidarity and help us get out this mess uh, that I think we're currently in. Thank you so much, Sreana.
1: It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and listening to you about your book and the insights. I hope that our listeners also find it interesting and pick up
2: a copy of your book and read it. So thank you once again. Thank you, Ritupanda. It was such a pleasure and uh, thank you so much for inviting me.